Chapter 4 The Engine Clutching his sack lunch, Rask closed the front door to his home. He eyed the horizon for any men with wide-brimmed hats, but failed to find anyone walking along the streets. Checking his watch, Rask saw he had a very small margin to stop at his favorite basement window before the morning shift began. He stepped off the porch step toward the Torbian home, and a deep voice from the neighboring front porch made him jump. The engine's the other way, if I recall, Mr. Torbion said, setting a newspaper neatly in his lap as he continued to rock in his chair. Rass looked over his shoulder as an excuse to not have to talk over the rush of his thumping heart. So it is. I just thought, while I appreciate that you've finally begun thinking, I'd recommend none of those thoughts correlate with my daughter, he said before pulling up a mug of coffee and taking a long sip. Rass glanced toward the window. He saw a bit of motion, but nothing he could focus on without earning further ire from Mr. Torbion. I was trying to help Ferdinand. I remember you saying so during the trial, he said, unblinking. The infrequency with which the man blinked disquieted Rass. It's a shame intention didn't stack up with reality. The front door opened and Mrs. Torbion stepped out with an unmarked wooden box. She stared at Rass as she set the box on the chair next to her husband. Erasmus? Ma'am, Rass said. Mrs. Torbion usually treated Rass with more warmth than her husband, but not today. She turned to Mr. Torbion. We're going to need at least a dozen more of these for the odds and ends. I'll see what's left at the office today, Mr. Torbion said. We'll probably have to unload the boxes we have on the ship and reuse them. You're moving? Rast blurted. Mr. Torbion sighed, otherwise leaving Rass's inquest unaddressed. I'll be in to help in a moment. He watched his wife collect his empty coffee mug and returned into their home. But you can't leave, Rass said. He opened his mouth again but couldn't come up with any particular reason for them to stay. The other cities are going to grow rather crowded with verdant refugees. I intend to not embarrass my family by being one of the last ones to realize help isn't coming. But the university. My daughter will have her pick of universities that remain above the clouds. Mr. Torbion stood and looked at his watch. We're leaving tomorrow, he said, opening the door and crossing the threshold. I'll make sure Callista says goodbye. Rast jerked slightly at the sound of the closing door. He knew the arranged goodbye was primarily for Mr. Torbion's sake. Picking up into a jog toward the engine, he lost himself in considering which words were appropriate when seeing someone for the last time. The circumstances of every other person previously snatched away from him didn't allow for such planning, which felt merciful now with a dull ache growing in the pit of his stomach. Would telling her how I feel about her be selfish? He couldn't offer her anything but a sinking city, and wasn't even certain what would happen to his mother if the city ran out of its reserve energy. The jog turned into a run when Rask came to a populated market square, but even lessening his time around others didn't leave him unscathed by passing curses. He knew they felt helpless because of him, and he couldn't entirely fault them for their unkindness. By the time he reached the main entrance to the engine, he glistened with sweat. Even with the extra effort, he reached Billy's office a few minutes late. San, Billy said, handing Rask the clipboard in a clean jumpsuit. She looked Rass over, noticing his clothes sticking to him and sweat matting his hair. You sick, boy? It's not contagious, Rass said, avoiding Billy's gaze by looking for his name in the list. The number next to his name indicated he was already clocked in half an hour early. It says I got here. I said I only needed your signature. Thanks, Rass said. He dangled the brown bag. Where should I? Oh, smart boy. Leave it with me. Volunteers don't get lockers, Billy said. The charitable way she said volunteer struck Rass oddly. Hey, Billy? Rass slipped his feet into the legs of his jumpsuit. What are people in the engine going to do when, if, the energy reserves run out? Some people on the surface are already leaving. He slid his arms in and fastened the buttons up the front of his uniform. Don't rightly know, she said. We've been promised several airships to ferry us away if it comes to that, but they'll be hard-pressed to find anyone willing to board. Rass furrowed his brow. How's that? Billy shrugged indifferently. 
If some of us leave, it makes it harder for the rest of us. The old girl needs a lot of love after decades of making do with patchwork repairs and a distinct lack of replacement parts. Nobody's drawn straws to be on a skeleton crew? Rass asked. Billy's chuckle lacked amusement. Hun, we are the skeleton crew. Verdant shuddered with a groan and the room tilted slightly. Billy reached out to keep the paperwork on her desk from sliding away, then pulled a small wooden ball from a pocket and placed it atop her desk. It rolled toward the wall marked with a large eight etched onto a single tile. She shot a look at Rass. The scraping of the elevator against the metal of the angled shaft made Rass's skin crawl. By the time he arrived at Engine 8, some of the crew were fighting a losing battle with a hissing pipe. He donned his goggles out of habit. About fifteen workers hung back, watching a smaller crew, led by Guy, attempt to seal off the spewing pipe. The team became harder to spot as the haze filled the corridor. One of the workers, a blonde woman maybe a few years older than Rass, gestured something rude until he remembered seeing it used in the previous day as a sign for an inquiry. What's going on? Rass shouted, barely able to hear his own words. She shook her head, and then pointed to the balled-up bit of wax stuffed in her ear. Pointing to a pipe running along the wall, she then traced it down the corridor. Turning back to Rass, she brought two fists together before snapping them away in opposite directions. Broken. "'Where's the shut-off valve?' Rass asked, then waved his arms dismissively. He couldn't follow her series of more intricate gestures and turned his attention to two workers moving toward Rass, each with the arm of a third, badly burned cohort around their necks. An explosion of steam shot out from the pipe, filling the corridor with a dense fog. The crowd disassembled, running away and knocking into Rass in the process. "'Their necks,' Rass realized. He slid through the retreating group and pelted down the metal walkway into the oppressive heat. The steam spurted in a rhythmic fits around the edges of the unsealed metal patches, and Rass found himself barely able to see in front of him. The thick air forced him to choke out a cough. "'Hello?' Rass called out to no response. He continued his jog only to tangle his feet in the arms and legs of downed co-workers. The fall brought him crashing to the grated floor. He mumbled an apology before realizing the ground remained cooler than the air above, but its temperature still rose. The idea of dragging these men to safety crossed his mind, but with the energy filtering in through the cracked pipe, he might only save one or two before the rest died. He needed to cut it off. Crawling forward, his hand reached the ankle of a man still standing. Rass hauled himself up into the boiling temperature to see Guy twerking a wrench around a clamp in pure defiance. What are you doing here? Guy shouted. Get out! There's too much energy spilled. Where's the shutoff valve? Further down, but don't you dare go down there! Rass bolted down the corridor, hunching low and losing the shouts of Guy and the hisses of steam. He reasoned if a convergence didn't kill him, some leaked energy wouldn't be a challenge. However, the heat remained an issue. He didn't know how long the corridor went, but running seemed a better idea than taking his time crawling along the ground. With each footfall, his heart pounded and blackness ebbed in the corners of his vision. He panted, but gulping the hot air only made matters worse. He followed the pipes along the walls, the spurts of steam shrinking in volume as he continued his dash through the fog. His hip struck something, sending his balance off kilter. Reaching his hands out to break his fall, his right arm hooked through a large metal wheel and caught at the crook of his elbow. Taking long, slow breaths, Rass eyed the three-foot-wide metal wheel. It burned against his arm, forcing him to quickly extricate himself from it, and he wished he had a pair of thick gloves. Unfastening the top of his jumpsuit, he pulled his undershirt off and wrapped it hastily around both hands before hauling on the large wheel. The metal burned but didn't sear his hands as it protested against his tugging. Another heave gave a promising creak, but he didn't know how many more tugs his body would allow as sweat poured. Come on, he shouted at the machinery the way he'd chastise his ship on days it wouldn't behave. He brought a booted foot onto one of the spokes and leveraged his weight against the device. It groaned in protest but began its slow motion to the right even as it sent a blast of steam into Rass's face. He tried to cry out in shock only to find his voice stolen by the searing heat. He continued the process, hand over burning hand, until the cessation of hiss down the corridor alerted him that he had done enough. 
Slumping to the ground didn't bring the relief from the temperature, as the metal grating itself had heated considerably. The state of exhaustion only allowed Rast to shamble toward where he had left Guy. If anybody were to come looking for bodies, he needed to at least make it back to the men attempting to seal the pipe before passing out. His heart, working overtime, thumped in his ears as he forced himself onward. Rass! A voice shouted out. Where is he? Ran off. Steam probably got him. Guy's voice said before coughing. Rass tried to speak, but his throat wouldn't obey. He almost raised his hand until he realized he wouldn't even be able to see it himself once fully extended. His legs wouldn't carry him any further. His body fell to the hot metal grating and rolled to his side, unable to catch his breath. Pulling his goggles off brought stinging tears to his eyes. He slammed them against the metal floor, then repeated the motion until he established an erratic rhythm. You hear that? Probably the pipe settling. Don't write me off, Rass thought, letting out a faint rasp in place of a scream. He continued the tapping until he heard one of the goggle lenses smash and clatter. In desperation, he threw the goggles into the fog and rolled to lie on his back. If he was going to cook, it would at least be evenly. Gasping for breath, Rass found himself moving as two pairs of hands grabbed him by the shoulders and began hauling him away. He mouthed a silent thanks as a third person took up his legs. Rass gave a weak smile before his head lolled back to see the path before him bobbing upside down. He avoided succumbing to motion sickness by focusing on the pain at hand. Burns would heal, but not being able to say goodbye to Callie hurt far worse. The dimly lit medical station for Verdant's engine was a relief for Rass. The men cautiously deposited him onto one of the propped-up mattresses, and all Rass wanted was to slip away from the waking world. Trying to get out of community service early? A raspy voice asked. Rass opened his eyes and looked at the bed to his left to see Guy sitting on the edge of the next bed over, staring back. Finn re-entered the room, carrying an unconscious man with the help of a couple other engine men. Oh, come off it, he said to Guy. I'd be a lot busier if it weren't for him. He walked to Rass's bed and looked the young man over. What is that, your shirt? He asked, tapping on the cloth still wrapped around both of Rass's hands. Rass nodded, offering up his hands to let Finn gently unravel the cloth, revealing a set of freshly pink palms. That's not so bad. Let me get a cell for that, Finn said, striding away to a cabinet across the room. Try not to move them. I told you not to go down there, Guy said, barely masking his agitation. That should have killed you is what that should have done. Attempting to speak brought little more than a faint squawk from Rass, then a frustrated sigh. He made a motion to his throat. Hey, Finn, we got a steam swallower, Guy said. Finn returned with a brass jar full of pale green ointment. I do suppose he wouldn't have learned when to keep his mouth shut from you he said with some satisfaction, not looking at Guy. You should get your voice back when the swelling in your throat goes down. Dipping two fingers into the salve, he began slathering it onto Rass's palms. The sting gave way to a numbing sensation that tingled slightly. Rass nodded his thanks. What's this I hear about you sending him to shut off the valve? A new angry voice entered the room before Billy did. A rare flash of fear played across Guy's face as he began his defense with hands outstretched. The kid wouldn't listen. You know I know protocol, woman. He saved your life. Billy said, storming into the room. Finn leaned in toward Rass and whispered, Lesson number one, don't make Mother mad. We wouldn't need to use the pipes from the energy reserves if it weren't for him, Guy said. We've never had to use them before, and you can bet we're going to have outbursts like that all across the city sooner or later, if we even get a later. I specifically told you to watch out for him, Billy said. It's not my fault he thinks he's energy proof, Guy said. He may just well be, Finn said, looking over Rass. These are just steam burns. I'm not seeing any signs of energy poisoning. Rass furrowed his brow, giving a confused look. All right, Finn began. As best as the medical world understands, everyone succumbs to energy overloading. It's just a matter of threshold. He'd make a good sky pirate, Guy said. You're not part of this conversation, Billy said. A stern look ensured he didn't protest the new rule. Rass mouthed the word pirate. 
He knew the most feared pirates were the ones composed of crew members that were less likely to succumb to energy. Initiation into certain crews was rumored to involve taking a cheap jet cycle beneath the clouds, and the longer one could last, the higher the share of the haul they garnered. Well, even the most resistant shipmen will come back with at least some energy poisoning, Finn said, unraveling some gauze to wrap Rass's hands. Usually causes an ashen skin tone, but you're about as hale and hearty looking as someone who locked themselves in a sauna overnight. Is he going to be all right? Billy asked. He's a little cooked. Hydration and rest should do the trick, Finn said, continuing to wrap Rass's hands. I'll check on these later. What about him? Billy nodded back at Guy. Aside from a lung full of hot air, he's fine. He's just making sure the kid's all right. Guy growled his disapproval of Finn's assessment before exiting. He's lucky Rass was there. He just won't admit it, Finn said to Billy. Billy pulled up a chair next to Rass's bed. If you hadn't contained the leak when you did, we might have lost a week's worth of reserves. As it is, we only lost a day or two. Rass made an approximation of a writing motion to Finn. Finn looked hesitant. You really should let your hands rest. How is he supposed to communicate? Billy asked, receiving an appreciative nod from Rass. Blinking, Finn said with a chuckle, until he realized nobody else found humor in the suggestion. Come on, it's not like we couldn't use a bit of levity. He pulled a pen from his lab coat and flipped his notebook of heavily recycled paper to a clean page. Knock yourself out, but no complaining if your hands keep hurting, you hear? Rass accepted his new tools for communication gratefully. The writing was clumsy, and his penmanship was never terribly good to begin with, but with the pen wedged between his thumb and palm, he wrote, Thank you, in broad strokes. Don't mention it, Finn said with a grin. I'll check back after my rounds, but don't be surprised if Guy sends someone after you if you aren't back on your shift in half an hour. Billy watched Finn attend to a patient a few beds down and reclined a bit in her chair. You know you don't have to be your father, right? She waited for Rass to begin writing, but after a moment decided to continue. Is that why you ran into the energy? Rass considered it for a moment. He hadn't thought much about the ramifications or what motives might be assumed of him for his actions. He shook his head. Good, Billy said. No sense in getting yourself killed trying to be him. Nobody expects it of you. He wrote, shouldn't expect impossible, and showed the pad to Billy before resting his head on the pillow and staring at the ceiling. Hey, look at me, she said with an intensity that surprised Rass. We don't have time to feel sorry for ourselves, so I don't want to see that out of you. People would have died if you weren't at eight today. Just keep doing what you can and I'll do the same. Billy stood, surveyed the wounded, then exited. Rass clumsily flipped the paper over to a clean sheet and began drumming up everything he wished he had to say to Callie. He hated that the letter she would have to remember him by would look like a child wrote it. The blank page stared at him. He didn't know where to begin. He wasn't even entirely sure of the goal of the letter. A new visitor entered the room and made a direct line for Rass's bed. The blonde girl from eight stood expectantly at the foot of his bed. Guy wants me to make sure you... How did he put it? Make yourself less useless while you're resting? Of course he does, Rass thought. He began writing a response before the girl waved to grab his attention. She held her hand up to her forehead and saluted. Then she placed her flat hand over her chest and moved on to some intricate gestures that Rass couldn't follow. Hello, my name is Kyria, she said, translating. With his mitt of a hand, Rass saluted back. He at least knew how to greet someone with sign language. Good. Welcome to the rest of your day. Kyria said, signing along with her spoken words. She walked over and sat in the chair Billy left. We'll focus on what you need to know to do your job on 8, but if we have time, we'll move on to other things. Kyria began her lesson with the alphabet, which she quickly abandoned after it became apparent Rass couldn't learn them without replicating the shapes with his own hands. Rass imagined Guy particularly enjoying the irony, but he quickly learned how to signal if he understood the sign or needed a repetition. After a couple hours of moving through basic conversations and engine parts, it became obvious he was giving the lessons his minimal attention. You do understand you can kill someone if you don't follow signed orders correctly, she said. Sorry, Rass signed. 
It was a simple enough gesture and one he knew he'd need to learn early on. Again? What's the sign for hungry? Finn asked, returning from his rounds. Kyria turned and demonstrated by making a cupped hand that ran from her throat to her stomach. What about I'm hungry? Finn asked. She pointed to herself and repeated the previous motion. Good. Me too. Care to join us for lunch? Kyria blushed a little bit and began signing a response before she caught herself. I'm supposed to stay with Rass. Finn rocked on his heels. I wasn't using a royal us. I was planning on stealing your star people here. With Kyria's back turn, Rass offered a sign thanks to Finn, who simply replied with a wink. Kyria turned to see what Rass did to prompt the wink, which allowed Finn a little celebration dance that made Rass grin. She signed, What? He happy, Rass signed. Why? Rass thought for a moment how to craft a response with his limited vocabulary. You fuel his engine. A grin spread across her face as she stood to leave the infirmary. Hold on. What are you telling her? Finn asked. I'll see you both in the mess hall, Kyria said before slipping through the doorway. You should know that the medic-patient relationship requires a lot of trust both ways, Finn said. You welcome, Rass signed. Much to Finn's dismay, his lunch date with Kyria turned into another sign language lesson for Rass, even with the absence of Guy and Billy. Why sign here? Rass asked. People talk here. No engine. You need practice, she said. I need... He signed, then looked down at the empty space on the table before him and mimicked a chewing motion, pointing to his mouth. Food, she said, displaying the far more elegant and more correct version of the sign. Did you not bring anything? No, she has it. Rass didn't know how to sign Billy's name or even if Kyria knew Billy. Who is she? Kyria asked. Rass looked over to Finn for help. He moved his hands in circles to indicate Billy's curly hair. I think he's talking about a crazy lady, Finn said, eliciting a glare from Rass. Am I not being helpful? I feel like I'm not being helpful. Billy. Rass croaked out in a soft whisper that made his throat itch and sting. Being able to finally produce a sound was an improvement upon the morning. Oh, Billy, Finn said. Then he lowered his voice and shook his head in mock chastisement. Billy's not crazy. Be nice. I think Billy has his lunch, Kyria said. You want to go to Billy's office? Finn asked. It was more of a suggestion than a question. He turned to Kyria. He'll be right back. That's fine, she said. Rass stood, nodded to Kyria, and tried not to laugh at Finn, who drew his hands apart in a wide motion. Take as long as you can. Leaving the mess hall, he noticed a dozen workers from eight meandering in, but no sign of Guy. A few men nodded to him with a bit less malice than before, which encouraged Rass a little. He hoped the story of the valve would spread around the engine, but couldn't imagine one event swaying popular opinion. Using a shortcut he had accidentally discovered on one of his previous fool's errands, Rass made his way through a dark passageway leading to the main office. Billy sat at her desk, studying reports. She looked up as Rass entered. Oh, sorry. After the pipe blew, it's been nothing but paperwork. How's the throat? Fine, Rass squawked. I barely... Stop. It hurts just hearing you, she said. Lunch is on the cabinet. Thanks, Rass signed. The radio on Billy's desk burst into static cacophony that settled on a man's voice. Mayday, mayday, this is Thomas Carnes of the Cirrus. India Bravo has returned. I repeat, India Bravo has returned. Bravo Company is heading towards Verdant and... No! The transmission cut off sharply, leaving the room silent. The handful of men and women that hadn't left for lunch yet all stared at each other for a moment before Billy spoke. They transmitted to the wrong channel. That should have gone to the Capitol building. She looked around at the others in the room. I don't know where else that was sent, but for now that information does not leave this room. Everyone clear on that? She turned back to look at Rass. We need to verify its origin, and we don't need to panic everyone. I have the message transcribed. A balding man several desks down said, lifting a sheet of paper in the air. Eric, relay the message to the Capitol, Billy said, pointing to the balding man. 
Ramsey, radio Port Authority and verify the Cirrus and have them look up Thomas Carnes to see if he's a member of the crew. The office buzzed with activity. Ma'am, I don't need to verify, Ramsey said through a clenched jaw as though releasing the tension would cause him to fall to pieces. Thomas is... was my brother-in-law. I'm sure he knew I'd pass it along. Rass froze. If Bravo Company was coming, then the Torbion's move would be a day late. Without further thought, Rass dashed toward the exit with a sack lunch in hand, ignoring the protests from Billy. Running crew members weren't entirely out of place in the engine, but twice he had to hold up his sack lunch to security officers feigning an important delivery. Once up top, the bright sun momentarily blinded him as he attempted to survey the skies for Sky Pirate ships. Not wanting to waste time letting his eyes adjust, Rast took off toward the residential zone. The people he passed looked as though they hadn't heard any news of impending doom yet, which relieved Rast. But if one ship ran afoul of the inbound fleet, then surely more broadcasts would soon come. Halfway to his goal, Rast felt the effects of dehydration start to kick in. His legs felt sluggish and his swollen throat made sucking in air nearly impossible. But he couldn't give up now if it determined Callie being around when Bravo Company inevitably bombarded Verdant. As he continued his run, his mind flitted to his mother. He didn't know how he would convince Mr. Torbion, but he needed to get Emma on their ship. Rass was the only family she had left. All plans immediately dissipated when he saw what was parked in the middle of the street directly in front of the Torbion home. A gleaming white vessel with silver accents looked like a hybrid between a giant skiff and an airship without a balloon. Its wingspan reached easily across both sides of the road, and Rass guessed it used the flat surface as a runway. The elegant design reminded Rass of the Kingfisher, but on a much smaller scale. Most ships in Atmo were based primarily off their seafaring forefathers, but this ship's cabin was fully enclosed. The entire cockpit lacked any hard edges, making the machine look like its designer was inspired by a cloud. Shouts snapped Rass's attention away from the vessel. Mrs. Torbion stood on her porch, engaged in a loud argument with the man on the other side of the threshold. The man held a wide-brimmed hat in front of him, gesturing occasionally and speaking in low tones that didn't travel far. Rass changed course, walking on the other side of his house, and back around behind to avoid detection. From behind his house, he could spot Callie's window, and cautiously made his way over to the side of their house. He peered inside to see Callie with her hair tied back, halfway through boxing up her bookshelves. He eased himself down to his hands and knees before rapping gently on the window. Callie looked over, giving a brief but sad smile at the sight of Rass before walking over to unlatch her basement window. Daddy said he'd talk to you this morning. What happened to your hands? Rass waved away her concern, then whispered in a husky voice that scratched with every syllable. Pirates. Coming. Today. Her eyes grew wide. What? Why haven't they sounded the alarm? You have to go. Now, Rass said. No other five words had ever caused him more pain. This was not how he imagined their last meeting. Callie turned and ran across the room before disappearing up the stairs. The argument in front of the house ended abruptly, and Callie came tearing around the corner as Rass stood. She threw her arms around his neck as she bowled into him. I don't want to leave. Rass watched the man with the hat as Mrs. Torbion came to the edge of the house and just stared at them. He was grateful that Mr. Torbion wasn't present. It'll be okay, he said, unsure of what that even meant anymore. Where are you moving? We don't know yet. Maybe Kinas, maybe Derailier, Callie said. We're not going anywhere until your father gets here, Mrs. Torbion said. Nobody is going anywhere, the man with the hat said. Not unless they're leaving in that thing. He pointed a long finger at the vehicle in the road. These sky pirates will attack anyone trying to flee Verdant, and almost certainly have forces at the entrance of the bowl. Callie released her grip around Rass's neck. Where is it going? Nowhere. Mrs. Torbion blurted, narrowing her eyes at the man with the hat. Nowhere with us on it. Callie, I need you to keep packing. We might have to leave as soon as your father gets home. Mom, who is this? Callie asked. An old acquaintance trying to call in a favor larger than he deserves, she said. Callie turned back to Rass. Promise me I'll see you again before I leave, she said, anger welling. You still owe me a critique on those chapters. 
Rass nodded and watched her walk slowly back to her mother. The two women disappeared back around the corner, leaving him alone with the mysterious white-haired man. If I could borrow you for a word, he said, imitating the tone from their previous meeting. Rass walked toward the man. What do you want, mister? My name is hardly of consequence, Mr. Veer. It comes to my employer's attention that you appear to have dug yourself a hole of a certain depth from which you cannot escape unassisted. He said as though the phrase were one he had heard spoken but had not understood himself. Am I correct? Everyone's employers know that. That may be the case, but not everyone's employers can offer you assistance like mine can. Is his name of consequence? Rass asked. Oh, of the highest. He smiled broadly, stretching the mustache wide across his face. He slid his hat on easily and said, Mr. Halcyon Napier has asked me to gauge your level of interest in saving Verdant.'